Good morning from International SOS. My name is Kayla Perfect. Today is the 14th of March, and this is your Monday Situation Update. To discuss the current events in Ukraine and surrounding countries, I am joined today by James Robertson, Security Director at International SOS, and Jacob Heaton, Security Manager at Medair. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today, and I want to get right into our discussion and ask what are the notable changes we have witnessed over the weekend on the ground? Thanks for having me, Kayla. So we've obviously uh, continued to see really intense ground and air combat ongoing in, in several of the fronts right across Ukraine. Uh, the Russian strategy still remains the, the four key axes uh, of, uh, of, of the, the, the campaign. So the focus on Kiev, that's the main effort, but also in Kharkiv, in the Donbass, uh, and on the southern front in and around Crimea. So on the main effort, which is clearly the, the capture of, of Kiev, we see uh, a growing force posture uh, attempting to encircle the city from the northwest, the west and the east across the, uh, the Dnieper. Uh, we see a quite, a quite significant intelligence and surveillance operations, so shaping operations uh, around the northern approaches to the city, reinforcing logistics. Um, but we find that the Russian ground forces uh, and, and artillery are around 20, 25 kilometres from the city centre. And, and over the weekend, of course, you might have, you might have seen uh, the Vasilkiv Air Base and, and the major ammunition depots uh, just south of the city destroyed by, by Russian rocket fire. But on those, those supporting efforts, we see the attempt to, to erect the land bridge from Russian territory uh, through the Donbass to Crimea. So that's why the, uh, there are operations very clearly in, in the port of Mariupol. Uh, and, and Russian forces have really captured the eastern uh, approaches to that, that city and very significant uh, casualties. The other two fronts are the Crimea to Odessa uh, uh, operation, where the, the Russian forces are attempting to break out of, of Kherson and Nikolaev. Uh, the operations in Kharkiv, and then I think the the final kind of uh, theatre uh, effort is is now the the operation to interdict some of the Western facilitation activities, so to spoil uh, and deter NATO supply lines. And, and over the weekend, we saw uh, Russian ballistic missiles target a Ukrainian military base and a training centre in Yavoriv, so just east of uh, Lviv. That's quite a significant training base for for NATO uh, supporting Ukrainian forces. So Kelly, we're seeing um, some, some adaptive tactics manifest on the ground uh, and some changes to, to the Russian approach. So we've spoken before about classic, classic Russian doctrine, emphasizing the use of armor, artillery, tactical aviation, and we're seeing that really come to the fore now. More Russian forces have been inserted. We, uh, we see that almost 100% of the original combat forces staged at the borders have, have been moved into the theater, and they're reinforcing them with formations from the Far East, from Armenia and elsewhere in Central Asia. More uh, artillery, more multiple launch rocket systems are being used, more indirect fires, which is very significant as it really uh, creates in incredible urban disruption, as we've seen in Kharkiv uh, and Mariupol. Uh, we've, we've also seen uh, an attempt to uh, co-opt and detain some local administrators. So we've seen uh, the, the mayor of Melitopol uh, detained. Uh, we've seen that the mayor of Kherson refused to establish a Kherson uh, People's Republic. So. That, that's possibly an emerging Russian approach to divine up uh, unitary uh, Ukraine. And then just finally, Kayla, we're seeing uh, Ukrainian adaptations to urban combat. So uh, cottage industries of homemade weapons and modifications are, are, are emerging. So 
use of drones, for example, for uh, crowd surveillance of Russian uh, infantry, uh, quadcopters being adapted to drop hand grenades, uh, anti-tank obstacles being manufactured, uh, civilians modifying RPGs for, for anti-infantry uh, effects using mortar rounds. And then uh, the real preparations, I guess, in some of the urban centers for, for drawn out conflicts. James, thank you very much for that insight. And I want to pass it over to you, Jacob, to give it a little bit of insight on what's happened over the past few days and weekends from an aviation standpoint. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Kayla. Uh, so it goes without saying, we're looking at a, a really in totality, a pretty dynamic situation uh, and almost unprecedented in modern times for what's happening in Eastern Europe right now. Uh, we'll start with the basics. Obviously, the Ukrainian airspace is closed and has been closed. Uh, in its entirety since February 24th to all flights uh, due to ongoing military conflict, which poses, without saying, a serious risk to uh, both overflights and operations to and from Ukraine. Um, what we're seeing now is really uh, just ongoing uh, attacks on airfields throughout the country. Uh, there's several secondary airfields, military airfields throughout the country that are likely destroyed. Uh, we can't even get total confirmation on some of them. Uh, but we're also getting some reports that uh, some international airports just generally may uh, be damaged. Uh, it's unlikely that these international airports are seeing you know, major you know, runway damage or destruction because they do have some military use and it's not really ideal to destroy them completely. Uh, but it's something that, that we've been seeing and it will probably uh, really get worse as this conflict goes on. Uh, for Ukraine specifically, one interesting point that we're going to be tracking for the long term, even beyond the immediate implications of this conflict, will be weapons proliferation throughout the country. Uh, as we know, Ukraine has stood up uh, several iterations of civilian defense forces, um, and some of those defense forces we know through visual evidence have gotten their hands on some anti-aircraft weaponry, uh, including Stinger missiles, IGLAs, things, things like that, uh, man pads just generally. So really what, what that means for civil aviation and anyone that you know is to potentially fly in the region at some point in, in the long term is that we have we will have a concern that these weapons are going to fall and have fallen into the hands of civilian populations. Uh, they could hit underground markets, they could be spread really uncontrollably in a, in a way that uh, really for this part of the world is pretty unprecedented. So it's something that a lot of analysts and a lot of uh, security organizations aren't really focusing on right now, uh, just given the, how dynamic the current situation is. But the weapons proliferation uh, in Ukraine specifically is going to be something for, for years that we're watching out for and is going to really have an effect on civil aviation for the foreseeable future. Uh, in Russian Belarus, obviously, we are seeing uh, some border buffer zones. Many aircraft are avoiding uh, at least a 200 nautical mile stand or observing at least a 200 nautical mile standoff distance from the Ukrainian border due to the ongoing conflict. We're seeing some reports of electronic warfare, GPS jamming, things of that nature, as well as uh, pretty significant amounts of cross-border miss missile file, fire and airstrikes uh, coming from both uh, Russia and reported Belarus as well. Uh, several southwestern airports uh, in Russia are closed uh, due to their usage by military aircraft and the, the fear that they could potentially be targeted by Ukrainian missiles. Um, that hasn't really happened yet. There hasn't been much cross-border activity from Ukraine over to Russia, uh, but it's still, as this conflict evolves, something we're going to watch for uh, specifically. Developments we can speak to over the past few days are pretty important. Uh, James did mention at one point uh, the statement by Russian authorities that incoming weapons shipment, ship, shipments from Western countries uh, into Western Ukraine could be considered to be legitimate military targets. Obviously, this statement in itself is a, an escalation, 
um, but it also calls into question the potential for flight safety uh, in NATO nations bordering Ukraine uh, for the first time. Uh, we haven't modified our advice for any of these nations yet, uh, but it, it is a step in that direction that we're monitoring very closely, especially within the context of an event that happened this weekend uh, in which a uh, an errant projectile, we can call it, uh, found its way from Ukraine uh, over uh, several countries bordering and landed in Zagreb in Croatia. Uh, no one was injured. Uh, there was some damage from parked cars and things of that nature. Uh, so really, it's a, a reality of, of, of open conflict that there will be projectiles landing and bordering nations. And really, you have to take the entire context uh, in stride to see what you're working with there in order to properly manage and understand the risk. Thank you both very much. Obviously, a very fluid and evolving situation. But if I switch gears a little bit, if we look to the future and simply the week ahead, what would you forecast uh, challenges that may see we may see over the coming week? Well, there are a few things. Some other developments uh, to look at uh, are the, the real increases and in ongoing supplies of lethal and non-lethal aid. So, of course, weapons and ammunition versus military equipment and supplies. Since we've seen American authorizations of additional um, small arms, uh, anti-aircraft weapons, anti-tank, uh, munitions being uh, being supplied as well, and and a key development on that front has been that Russia has identified that its its troops, its forces can target those weapon uh, uh, supplies and convoys, which I think is a really significant uh, issue to, to watch this week. I'd also point you to the uh, the Ukrainian announcement that they're working with um, Turkey uh, and Israel as possible mediators uh, in in uh, preparing a, a framework for peace negotiations. We've also seen. Uh, the, the really significant refugee outflow that's going to continue um, this week. Uh, so the, uh, the figure is now at around two and a half billion people have, have fled Ukraine since the start of the operations. Uh, and I think watch very closely what happens with the, the 14 previously planned humanitarian uh, uh, corridors that have, that have been opened. So nine of those we're tracking have been opened uh, over, the, over the weekend to Kiev, to Slavyansk, to Zaporizhia, uh, to Zhutomir. Uh, and so just uh, that really is facilitating the flow of some civilians uh, out of out of conflict areas. I guess, Kayla, just to, to look ahead uh, a little bit, uh, we're really at a stage of, of looking at a very drawn out conflict with significant urban military operations. Uh, the Russian aims appear to remain uh, the same as, as the pre, uh, you know, as, as they were two weeks ago, achieving a resignation of Zelensky's government, uh, shaping operations now, uh, potentially for, for ceasefires. Um, but I think we'll see quite possibly um, further missile strikes on, on Western Ukrainian targets, since uh, these are now uh, a stated uh, targets by, by the Kremlin. We might also see uh, attempts to take uh, direct control of Belarusian units, or at least uh, pressure President Lukashenko to commit forces into, into the conflict. So those are some of the issues to watch. Um, our escalatory triggers kind of remain broadly the same if, you, if you've been looking at our reports, uh, looking at uh, shortages of essential goods in Ukraine, protracted disruptions to key services, uh, the widespread targeting of civilian infrastructure, all of those things I think remain as well as, as kind of broad-based um, escalatory uh, triggers, Kayla. Yeah, so from an aviation security standpoint, and really for anyone that is 
uh, looking to fly anywhere in the world, kind of routes via Europe, via the Caucasus, via the Middle East. Uh, this has been uh, very disruptive to commercial overflights, uh, especially. Uh, any flight from, say, South Asia, just generally, to Europe, generally, uh, would typically route over Russia. Uh, obviously, Russia is a very large country, and uh, those flights now all need to be rerouted uh, and have often taken some routes that have added significant flight time uh, and then puts into question really the kind of financial viability of these commercial flights, given the, the fuel costs, uh, the extra routing fees, and just the kind of overall time that they take. So this is such a disruption to the kind of stability uh, of uh, of the region in general, that it could potentially touch off uh, bouts of instability in other places that are already teetering teetering on edges, such as uh, what's happening between Iran and, and the rest of the world. Uh, we can also kind of extend that out to Armenia and Azerbaijan, where we've seen some increased clashes in recent days uh, over the Nagorno-Karabakh disputed area, and, which is important in this context because, again, many flights that previously uh, flew over Russia that are in, at times no longer permitted to do so will route over northern Azerbaijan into Georgia. So if this airspace becomes con more conflictive, uh, it could further complicate uh, flight matters and, and things of that nature. So we're going to be watching closely for, for things like that. Um, obviously, we have a major, major disruption happening through the entirety of Eastern Europe. We don't really anticipate further flight restrictions being implemented uh, on Russia or Russia implementing on other countries such as what we saw uh, in the opening stage of the conflict, uh, that's sort of maxed out, so to speak. Um, but at the end of the day, we don't anticipate those restrictions to be lifted at any time soon. Um, beyond that, I think we need to watch many of the events on the ground that, that James had spoken to uh, or alluded to here. Uh, if we see further escalation uh, toward the west of Ukraine, such as that missile strike uh, that happened uh, near Lvov over the weekend uh, on a, a base that's used or has previously been used by NATO forces, if we see an increase of those strikes, uh, if we see uh, potentially uh, a strike on a supply line coming from a NATO country or, you know, potentially in a NATO country, uh, that would obviously be a serious, serious escalation that we don't really anticipate happening right now. Um, but it's something that, especially given Russia's statements recently, is certainly on the map and something we need to watch. Uh, so we'll be keeping an eye on that uh, in the coming weeks, uh, the coming days as well. Um, and uh, anything related to that from an aviation standpoint, we will publish via Aviation Alert to our Medair commercial aviation business uh, and general aviation clients. Uh, and we'll also come out via Travel Security Online uh, for, for our broader, broader platform. Jacob, thank you very much. And I want to close lastly by looking at the advice piece. Of course, there's a lot of organizations and individuals impacted by this scenario and its evolution. So what would you say to organizations looking at travel uh, in short, medium, and maybe even long-term? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it goes without saying, I think we're, we'll be advising that all operations to and over Ukraine be deferred for indefinitely, uh, given the length of the conflict there and the ongoing uh, issues that are going to arise from it. Uh, we're also right now, um, for our commercial and business and general aviation clients, advising that um, they consider deferring flight operations to Russia, uh, really amid the ongoing logistical challenge challenges that have been in place due to the interna international sanctions that have been imposed. Um, both Airbus and Boeing have suspended shipments uh, of parts and maintenance, uh, and really all, all supporting operations to Russia. Uh, which raises a, a pretty important concern as far as the maintenance uh, of aircraft there, even for those international carriers that are still operating there. Uh, it's something we're going to want to watch uh, in, in the coming weeks for sure, uh, especially as I believe just this morning, uh, Russia passed a law that um, 
more or less required many um, leased aircraft uh, to remain in the country uh, if they are currently parked there now. So we're looking at a situation in which, you know, owners of, of commercial aircraft abroad, if they have them in Russia, they're essentially out of their reach right now. And there's some concern that these aircraft, um, you know, obviously will lose their airworthiness for sure, but may be pieced apart to replace, uh, you know, the stream of, of uh, aircraft parts that are now not coming into Russia. So we're, we're going to have to watch that for sure. Uh, but in short, uh, defer operations to Ukraine. Uh, consider deferring operations to Russia. If anyone needs to fly to Russia, make sure it's a short-term flight there and back that you're not, not overnighting there as well. And then uh, monitor very closely just ongoing developments day by day, hour by hour, if operating or flying anywhere near the conflict zone, um, uh, really just, just broadly and across the board. And finally, to you, James, what recommendations and advice would you give to organizations? Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of it has been around identifying exposure uh, and identifying particular cohorts of staff that require the most urgent support. And that might be because of their specific locations in uh, Ukraine or indeed uh, in, in Russia, where people have moved into Poland and surrounding areas, but also their individual needs, their, their family circumstances, um, their, uh, their, their importance to the organization and how you can actually get the advice and intelligence and support to them anyway. What we found over the weekend is that as the Russian strategy has adapted and, and more urban centers are being attacked, we're seeing a, a additional movements of people either internally within Ukraine or across uh, the borders. Of course, our advice, not surprisingly, is about the, the relocation of people from combat operations but only if you can sustain yourself. Uh, and a lot of our advice has been around uh, helping managers uh, and decision makers understand how uh, people can move themselves to, for example, a Southwestern province. Uh, uh, and if they can sustain themselves on the way with, with food, with water, medication, with fuel, of course, and how those movements of people present additional uh, risks of weather, weather and long journey effects. Uh, the sad truth, of course, is that we've got lots of organizations who have staff who are in the immediate proximity of, of, of military activities uh, so we have to shelter in place with potentially disrupted communications infrastructure and limited potential for, for support. So the advice is very clearly unique to their specific uh, uh, circumstances, but that's, that's a broad outline of our advice uh, at the moment. It's likely to remain broadly aligned with that throughout the week, Kayla. Well, that leaves me to thank James and Jacob for their insights today. And thank you all for listening to the International SOS Situation Update podcast. To find out more on the situation, visit our Ukraine and surrounding countries webpage on the International SOS and MedAir websites. And stay tuned for our next episode.